Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Every single club in every league we've done is doing something. There's not one club that's like, nah, we don't care. All of them, depending on their resource, their time, where they are, are doing what they can and they want to do more. Hello and welcome to Our Impact. I'm your host, Jeremy Casebeer. This show explores what our impact is, what we can do about it, and how we can help scale positive outcomes and solutions. We'll be learning from people doing strong work across nonprofits, academia, business, and sport to connect the dots and find ways we can all take action. This show is as a result of my own searching. A few years ago, I measured my carbon footprint for the first time, and I realized how my travel as a professional beach volleyball player is actually at odds with the positive impact I'm striving to have. I wanted to act, but it wasn't clear where to begin. I've made a number of changes since then, but I'm still learning more every day. I hope you find these conversations useful and that the ideas we explore might help you take action in your own life and community. This episode is brought to you by Mir. The reason I partner with Mir is that they make beautiful products I enjoy using day to day and traveling, which helps me cut down on single use plastic. I can't tell you how nice it is to have their Thermo 3D vacuum insulated bottles keep my water ice cold the whole day when I'm at the beach training or competing. My favorites for the beach and travel are the 42 ounce wide mouth water bottle for hydration, the 20 ounce travel tumbler for coffee, and the food canister that I pack my son's school lunches in. Aside from making awesome drinkware, they've earned B Corp, 1% for the planet and climate neutral certifications. So you know they're taking transparent action to have a positive social and environmental impact. And if that was enough, every mirror product sold helps fund nonprofit partners working at the intersection of communities and the environment. There's literally a giving code on every product, so you can look up Mir's impact made possible by your support. Go to mir.com and use Casebeer20 to receive 20% off your order. This episode is brought to you by Rise Brewing Co. Rise makes my favorite nitro cold brew coffee and provides energy for good people to do good things. If I'm at home, I start my day with Rise's original black nitro cold brew with their oat milk, or if I'm heading to the beach to train or surf, I'll take a mocha or vanilla latte with me. The best part is that Rise is 100% USDA certified organic. The oat milk Rise makes is tasty and impactful. Farming oats uses about six times less land than farming dairy and six times less water than farming almonds. I've been working to shift towards a plant-based diet, but I'm not perfect and it's definitely a process. Rise makes it easier for me because I can swap half and half for Rise's tasty plant-based oat milk and I'm supporting certified organic farmers, all while enjoying delicious nitro coffee. Head to Rise Brewing Co. and use Jeremy's C15 for 15% off your order and free shipping. My guest today is Claire Poole. Claire is at the center of the sports and sustainability movement. She's the CEO and founder of Sport Positive, which supports the global sports industry to increase their action and ambition on climate change through direct support, building community, communications, the annual Sport Positive Summit, and Sport Positive Leagues. Sport Positive Summit is now the leading global meeting place for sports affecting positive environmental impacts in collaboration with the UNFCCC Global Climate Action and the International Olympic Committee. I've attended the Sport Positive Summit multiple times and have made invaluable connections. This past year, I thoroughly enjoyed participating on the panel about athletes using their platforms to accelerate climate action. As we mentioned, Sport Positive Summit is a really strong community that actively collaborates to share best practices and help scale impact through sport. As a consultant to the UNFCCC, Claire supported the inception of what is now the UN Sports for Climate Action Framework. Claire is on the advisory board for Eco Athletes, the Sport Ecology Group, and many other organizations. Her views and work have been covered by BBC Sport, Sky Sports, The Independent, The Athletic, and many, many more. 
In our conversation, we dive into her work building the Sport Positive Summit, how she created the first sustainability table in the English Premier League for football or soccer, and the role of collaboration in her work. We also discuss how athletes can overcome common barriers to advocating for social and environmental issues that they care about. As always, if you have any feedback, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify because I'm always looking to improve. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please consider sharing it with a friend. Claire Poole, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Thank you. And thank you for speaking at our summit recently. I'm delighted having had you speak at our event, Jeremy, that I can come and speak on your podcast. Yeah, that was my first time speaking and I've attended a couple of Sport Positive Summits and I'd love to just probably start right there. What is Sport Positive Summit? And can you share a little bit about the background where it started and kind of where you hope it'll grow over the next few years? Yeah. So Sport Positive as as an organization, our kind of whole mandate is around how we can help sport increase its action and ambition on climate change. So everything that we do comes back to that. And the summit has been around for a few years now, taking place virtually because of COVID, but we'll be back in person 2022. Um, But we will keep the virtual overlay because I think, you know, we'd be a bit mad now to go backwards to all being in person. So for those who want to join in person, brilliant, but we'll also still be online as well. Um, And basically it's the annual meeting place for sport globally to come predominantly, I think, to network is the big thing. And so we have so many incredible leaders, yourself included, athletes, sports organizations, federations, you know, climate scientists and leaders in the field talking about various myriad of issues that we're tackling in sport as it relates to the climate emergency. And, And while that's absolutely outstanding, I think it's the networking and the connections that people can make of the partnerships that are formed there that is really the core of why we do it. I'm delighted, you know, over the years that so many people have said, we've got this partner now, we met them at the summit or the people connected us here and that. So that's all the kind of the, the summit. And then we also at Sport Positive more broadly do things like Sport Positive Leagues, where here in the UK and Europe, we rank elite football clubs based on their environmental metrics, a bit of friendly competition to sort of top the environmental sustainability leagues. And happily, that's led to quite a lot of action over here. And because of that competitiveness and realizing, you know, where club standings were, et cetera. And then more broadly, we also kind of work to try and get coverage in the media and try and get sports media to bring climate change into its coverage more. As you know, working with the likes of athletes or eco-athletes, where I sit on the advisory board to try and help support that. I also sit on the board of the Albert Sports Consortium, which looks at sport broadcasting and how climate change get involved. So in terms of the stakeholder group, I kind of am a bad penny in this area. Everywhere (laughs) you look, Jeremy, I pop up. (laughs) Ah, it's amazing. And that's one of the things I love about the Sport Positive Summit is, like you said, it's people from every different stakeholder group in sport and sustainability. And the first few years I just attended virtually, and it's just a great opportunity to meet people across different sports, different leagues, all coming together, sharing best practices. And it's such a small, tight-knit group that once you get introduced to one person, like I connected with Maddie Orr, and then she connected me to you, uh, Maddie Orr at Sport Ecology Group. And then she connected me to Elise Spivak at Waste Management. And then you share what you're working on, and people are happy to make introductions and connect the dots, which I love. Just on that, I was going to say what was amazing is that it does, it's such a small, close-knit community. And one of the biggest 
indicators of progress to me from the summit this year was that when I looked at the attendee list, I was like, I don't know all of these people. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, there's so many new organizations that are just starting their journey in this space. Um, and incredible to be like, I've got no idea where they're at. I need to catch up with them because for a number of years, as you said, very close knit group and everyone knows everyone. So I think uh, that to me of not knowing that was a big indicator of how this movement is expanding. Yeah. And before we dive in, I definitely want to touch on the work you're doing in football or soccer. Can you give an overview of the different stakeholders in sport and climate action? There's a lot of different work being done from, like you mentioned, eco-athletes, which I'm a part of and you're an advisor to, the athlete side, the leagues, the teams, the venues. Can you just give a broad overview of where things are and kind of what everyone's working towards? Totally. Yeah. So, you know, I think sport, as as you and all of your listeners, I'm sure know, is very complex in terms of decision making and in terms of the business of sport the performance of sport there's so many different facets to it that actually makes this work quite complex and you obviously have broadcasters and rights holders and federations and governed bodies so for us all of these organizations have to be involved in the fight against climate change in terms of making genuine change so you know, whilst it's incredible if a, a sports club, a baseball club or a basketball club or a football club makes commitments, if the venue they operate in haven't made those commitments and the federation that governs them haven't made those commitments, no matter how strong their effort is, they're always going to be hampered. So we need this like top down, bottom up approach across all of society, but no more so in sports where where we have the federations, the governing bodies, etc. We need them help support their clubs, their organisations to make this change. Then with inside the organisations, we need the athletes and the fans to get involved. Then more broadly, as we've mentioned, sports broadcast accounts for a huge element of what we're doing. So while they're not in this sports organisers supply chain, if you like, in terms of bringing sport together, the broadcast is such a huge part of the business, such a huge part of the footprint that if we don't bring the broadcasters in, then we're missing that. So this, you know, across the supply chain, I would say we work predominantly with leagues, federations, governing bodies, clubs, athletes, broadcasters, and then also to a lesser but still substantial extent, local and national governments, UN bodies, and then NGOs and civil society as well. So it's very expansive when you think of maybe business in terms of a corporate that owns itself wholly and works quite independently. Sport is it's very, very complex in comparison to other industries. <laughs> Absolutely. And you mentioned there is a lot of progress with leagues and teams, but if it's not connected to the athletes, if it's not connected to the sponsors, if it's not connected to the local community and the fans, it doesn't reach its potential. And that's one of the things I'm so optimistic about sport and leagues and teams connecting with all the different stakeholders and athletes taking individual action using their platforms. Because it's one thing if a team is installing solar panels on the roof and talking about it, but it's a whole other thing if you get the star athlete on the teams talking about it. The example, I think it was four or five years ago, LeBron James rode his bike to practice and it was all over ESPN, all over social media. One simple action just rippled throughout the entire (laughs) social universe, you know? Yeah. Incredible. And it's just, his call was in the shop. That was it. We yeah. just got on and thought, well, I have to get the practice. So we got on his bicycle yeah. and headed off. And it's just, yeah, a furore about yeah. <laughs> and an uptick in cycle use. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to dig into collaboration and which is SDG 17 a little bit. And I think that's one of the things that Sport Positive Summit does so well. It brings together people 
across every stakeholder group from sports, sustainability, building community and helping people connect the dots. How are you thinking about collaboration with the Sport Positive Summit and I guess with climate action and sport more broadly? More broadly, yeah. So I think a big point that you touched on there that I missed in my own role is the, the sponsor supplier side, which is massive. And I think certainly on the supplier side, there's obviously so many different collaborations that happen in sport. But in terms of sort of getting our own house in order, if you like, and reducing yes, our absolutely. own emissions and getting getting that first to be credible and authentic. We need to work collaboratively with partners to be able to do that. So the best supplier-buyer relationships I've seen in sport are ones where they don't see themselves as someone supplying a service. They see themselves as partners to bring a service in the best possible way to enable an environmentally friendly but exceptional fan experience. So again, if you think of venues and stadiums, et cetera, or any any sport that takes place in in a in a venue as opposed to outdoor, um, the work with their partners is very much that collaboration is incredibly important. It still is obviously absolutely crucial for touring sports or sports that travel and have to have collaborations of partners with either host cities or local councils, etc. But idea of collaborating as opposed to just having suppliers, having sponsors, an exchange, a transaction, and then that's it. I think it's a, it's a massive missed goal if we look at the, the work that we need to do around climate change. So I think there's sort of operational collaboration, if you like, where yeah. we're going to buy a lot of the time when sports organisations say to me, how are we going to do this? We have got limited time. We've got limited resources. This just all seems like a lot that we have to do. Actually, if you choose the right suppliers, they can <laughs> yeah. do a lot of the work for you, right? So around energy, transport, food, waste, water, most organisations, they work with partners to enable those to happen. So if you choose partners that are doing all of those things in an environmentally friendly way, they can all help you reduce your impact by just choosing them. You actually don't have to do loads of the yeah. legwork yourself. So clever sort of ideas around that. And then collaboration more broadly. I, I really like the idea of sports, sort of rival sports teams collaborating off the pitch, off the field, off the court, because whilst we go at it and then, you know, that's what it is when we're in a field of play or we are, in, in a tournament outside of the pitch, outside of the, the, the water, wherever it is that we're playing our sports, actually we can, by coming together and collaborating around ideas, we can often reduce our impact and massively share best practice, share ideas. And it makes no difference whatsoever to our performance on the court, you know, or on yeah. the field or on the plate, because we can use the power of collective action as organisations to make big changes. So I think SDG 17 and this partnerships collaboration piece is, so crucial um, and I know through your work you're so super hot in this area as well like it's just what we can achieve is massive if we work together as them. 100% and I just want to touch on a couple points you made is especially with the supply chain for whether it's a venue or a league like beach volleyball that goes to a different beach or city yeah. and we're going through this process right now with the ABP tour and waste management is a lot of it comes down to just setting up systems and asking for data from your suppliers. Okay, you get water from so-and-so or food from here or diesel from here or biodiesel from there. Just setting up those systems where you're asking them for information ahead of time, how they're shipping it, how much there is, putting the system in place. And it's a handful of questions and it does get a little complex, but once you have it in place or once you find the partners that already report on the information, you just make your life way simpler. You can set a baseline and then actively improve over time. So it definitely takes some work up front. 
and take some buy-in from your partners in supply chains. Mm -hmm. But once you have that, it's way more straightforward just to work towards improvement over time. Okay. Couldn't be in better hands with Lee Spivak at Waste Management as well. What a joy that man is. I'm so fired <laughs> up to work with him and the team. Yeah. <laughs> and then another point you made was getting teams and leagues to compete basically on impact is yeah. giving them a target or goal they're working towards, kind of a roadmap of what they can do to get there, and then just letting them go free to compete on impact and try and have a positive program in the local community and get their different stakeholders, fans, athletes, sponsors involved. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you've done that in soccer? Yeah, so I, I can give two examples, one that we're doing and one that another sports organization is doing that I think you'd be sure you probably know about and might be worth mentioning as well. So for us, in terms of our work, so it kind of started off the, the sport was the league stuff, which we've done a couple of times now with the English Premier League and we've done one version with Bundesliga, which is the German elite soccer league um, and we're doing with other leagues across Europe. Basically started off, Jeremy, to be honest, of me wanting to find out where everyone was at because I'm an yes. actually nosy person. And <laughs> I basically started, you know, chatting to the clubs around different categories. So not a perfect science, but the big the big categories that we would think of in terms of sure. emissions. So, And what are those? Yeah. So energy, transport, food, water, waste, uh, single-use plastic, and then sort of their communications, engagement, advocacy work on climate, et cetera. So did it across eight different categories and worked with academics to kind of put a bit of rigor behind that and bit of point system. Then collaborated with the clubs in the first instance, the clubs in the English Premier League, you know, researched what we could find in the public domain that they were doing and presented that to the clubs and said, what are we missing? worked with the clubs on that, got all of that information and then put that into a, a table where basically they were ranked and then they very transparently could see where points have been allocated and why. Whenever I talk about this, I'm really um, conscious to say this is not a perfect science. So people said, say to me, well, you missed biodiversity and you haven't put the carbon footprint of clubs, etc." We're constantly evolving what it looks like and we're actually adding in biodiversity and education categories for 2021 but also things like carbon footprinting like it takes organizations and you'll probably experience it, it can take months and months of experts to find that out yeah. it's only it's only real for that period of time and then it it's always an active date <laughs> it's always an estimation plus or minus five yeah. ten fifteen percent yeah exactly and you know it already takes us a lot of the time you know four to six months to get this information together if we were going to calculate a carbon footprint for every team it would just wouldn't happen so no. it isn't a perfect science but it's a yardstick it's a benchmark it is just basically a start to do to, and they're all ranked against the same category so yes like we can improve we can evolve but importantly the other point i make is that all of the information that we publicize has come from the clubs. So we are just finding information ourselves and putting that out there. It's really important to us that the clubs engage with us on this journey. We get the information directly for them. Because to get this information out and to have this healthy competition, but also to engage the clubs so they understand where they rank and why. And it's led, you know, to a lot of positive action. And I, I kind of mention when I'm talking about it to me before we even launched the first version I saw it as a success because two or three teams brought forward plans to do things like put bike racks in their stadium or provide plant-based food options on their concourses early 
to get the point in Audley. Nice. So that's so cool. Yeah, because just sports and competition, you know, like it doesn't yeah. matter what it is. People want to be top of the league. So <laughs> we now as we've evolved, we've carried on and we've done multiple years of it. And the clubs ask me when the next version's coming out, what's going to be included, what do they need to be across? And you know, the clubs to their massive credit, they really have stepped up you know and they've said we're kind of doing this work anyway maybe we haven't spoke about it as much but now you're going to speak about it anyway so we should as well own this and start doing more etc and it's only led to positive actions the only negative remark i ever have had about it is that and a couple of well, one person who, who spoke to me about it said it felt slightly distasteful that considering what a massive emergency we're facing with climate change that we are pitting teams against each other and actually it should be collaborative which i take on board and i fully understand but my reply there was yeah yes or no yeah yes. my reply <laughs> in that instance was listen it is the biggest challenge of our time and it is it is too important to to be making into a competition but if i gathered this information and put together a 50-page report no, no way <laughs> exactly I put well, it into a concise like standings table yes. people are interested yeah it's just like wins and losses and draws they can clearly see where they stand and yeah. the fact that every each team is publicly disclosing on it that's huge yeah. and that's the, the thing too i think sport. that yeah, I think that's the thing that gets overlooked so much in the conversation around sport and climate action is what is sport good at? <clears throat> Incremental improvement, working your butts off, training hard and yeah. competing. So <laughs> that's just yeah. natural for teams to do that. But I would yeah. love to better understand how did you get buy-in from <laughs> these leagues and teams and yeah. multiple countries? Like that's <laughs> that's quite a feat. And I'm and sure then, it wasn't easy. But how then, did you kind of approach that? And like, when did you start getting traction? Was there like after the first or second or third team? Like, how did it yeah. really start to come together? I think it's a really good question, Jeremy. I know a lot of organizations are trying to do this in the US and other countries, and they haven't seen the success that we've had with it. But I think, I don't think I'm special, to be honest. I think what we ah, did was- I disagree. We, <laughs> we, um, That's a pretty, I wasn't pretty impressive undertaking. <laughs> and, but no, I think we, we started from a place of knowing quite a few of these organizations maybe not as well as we know them now but we've been in the space for a while and we had credible connections and we've been working in this space for a while so we weren't coming out of nowhere landing in saying give us all your information we yeah. people knew who we were we obviously work with the likes of the un etc so we're not no one and it's so a strong have, introduction yeah exactly we have <laughs> you know which we are honest and delighted to be able to work with the climate change arm of the UN so closely. I think we'd established ourselves in the space before we set into this work, which really helped. I think we have a lot of friends, partners, colleagues, contacts who would be able to vouch for us as well. We went at it in a way where we didn't just go to them and say, can you give us all this information? It was really important for me to find out everything that's in the public domain first and present that to them. If someone was a fan of your club yeah. and they were really into this space, this is what they'd be able to find online through extensive search. And at the time, most of it wasn't on clubs' websites. It was through third-party interviews and it was through different elements. So you would have had to really look for it as well. So actually one of our metrics for the communication was that you only got top points if your club had a sustainability page on the main right club on website. Their website. Yeah. yeah, make which, it front and center. Exactly, which is for me, giving the highest points for that was obviously trying to engender that action because if I'm a fan, I, I'm not going to search the internet. I want to go onto my club's website and see the drop down and find out yeah. quickly what they're doing. So I think also doing our own research and showing that we put in the hard yards to show credibility really helped. 
And then just trying to build that relationship and being very honest that we weren't trying to call people out for not doing action. We preface everything with like it's healthy competition. And we are very, very positive about whenever we're interviewed, whenever I'm interviewed about it or I talk about it. I'm at pains always to say every single club in every league we've done is doing something. There's not one club that's like, we don't care. All of them, depending on their resource, their time, where they are, are doing what they can and they want to do more. And we really want to push that across. And even probably exactly the same in the US, even where you have teams in the same league, their resources and their reach could be wildly different. So there's upsides and downsides to that because big teams usually say to me, well, it's easy for the smaller clubs, but but we've got, you know, 80,000 people in our stadium every week. So we've got a bigger deal. And then the smaller clubs say, well, we haven't got the resources of those big guys. So there's always a reason, you know. So in terms of that, I think that having a reputation in the space already, trying to be credible and authentic in the way we went and spent time building those relationships. The first league that we did, I would say start to finish, it took nine months in terms of doing the research, going back and forth at the clubs, explaining how it would happen, explain, you know, again, very we're very transparent. So when we collated all the information, all the clubs saw that before it went live and then we gave them a month to come back on anything that was missing or anything that had been updated in that time. We were very clear on where it was going to be published and by who, et cetera. And I think it, it's just about being honest with people and, and transparent that we're not doing this to, to single people out for being yeah. the best or the worst. We just basically want to try and, do this to engender more action and I think that's resonated and now we've done a few obviously it it becomes easier and easier because you have more of a reputation the space for the way you operate yeah I think there's something really cool about how you presented it as an opportunity and built a trusting relationship from your previous work and did your homework before you went in and said this is what you need to change and this is why could you talk a little bit about the storytelling around it too because i'm sure for the clubs it's really important for them to communicate what they're doing and i'm sure some clubs dig deeper into different areas whether it's food their local community or renewable energy just would love to learn a little bit more about storytelling and how they communicate that to their fans and community i think this you're right the storytelling element is so crucial to this because as we know sports fans don't want to be preached about this stuff for most people sports and escape you know they don't want to be told (laughs) that what they're doing every day is wrong you know it's about positive reinforcement and saying what we're doing well all of the storytelling I think varies and I think it varies because clubs have got obviously different stories to tell but also I think what we see is that especially here in the UK people will call bullshit very quickly if clubs aren't, you know, if, if clubs are saying things and it doesn't quite stack up, yeah, it will be that, called out pretty quickly. I think we need a little bit more of that in general. Yes. There's just too many organizations just slapping the logo here, saying the right words there. Yes. And that's like you said, with putting the, the report or the sustainability page front and center on the website, mm. that's the first thing I look at when I come across a brand, I'm like, oh, this brand seems kind of cool. Are they impactful? And then yeah. go straight to their sustainability or impact report and look for their certifications to see, are they actually walking the walk? Yeah, absolutely. And I think as part of that, we're only going to see more of that, aren't we? And, and this yeah. progresses. And I think if you look at football, soccer here in the UK as an example, most of the top teams now that are global franchises and enterprises started off as small community clubs in quite working class areas you know yeah. so I think if we would equate it to like the US you're thinking of like a Philadelphia Eagles fan you know like work hard 
mainly yeah, blue, blue collar. collar. Exactly. You know, obviously that's a gross generalization, but I think that, that those sorts of groups of fans, they won't stand to be lied to or to have the, the wool pulled over their eyes, as we say. So in terms of the storytelling and the messaging, the ethos and the, the messaging behind it has to be transparent and honest and come from a humble place. It has to meet people where they are. It has to give them pride in their club or it has to show them, you know, what their club is doing that's really strong. And, and I think that is a great lesson for us all, to be honest, in terms of how we should be communicating around this stuff. Because whilst it's lovely to say we're doing these things well, I think all of us, we've had this conversation ourselves in terms of the athlete conversation. We're all hypocrites to a greater yes. or lesser extent. So unless you live off the grid, <laughs> in which case we wouldn't be in this conversation now, you are in some way involved with the fossil fuel economy because it's unfortunately... inescapable. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the world we live in and that's our reality right now. So in terms of that, we, have, we are living in this time and this culture, cancel culture sort of calling people out and ripping people down. But I think the way that we can get around that in terms of sports storytelling and what we see with football is that they're not holding themselves out to be perfect or that they've got all the answers. What they're saying is, we're doing these things, you know, we're making a difference. We've still got, you know, a long way to go, but we're in the mix, you know? Yeah. We are making efforts. We're committed and we're trying and we're learning and improving. And that's all you can really do. I've been at this for quite a while, but it took me... I don't know how many years of reading, learning, going back to school at UCLA to get a certificate of sustainability before I actually felt comfortable speaking out on it. Yep. And one of my first textbooks was The Responsible Company by Yvonne Chouinard, founder of Patagonia. And I was rereading it for the second time in the class. And one of the first things he says is, look, we're not a perfect company. We're trying, but it's impossible to not have any impact. It's part of the system. It's, it's inescapable, like we mentioned. But yeah. we're going to take the effort to understand what our impact is, what we can do about it, and how we can help be part of the solutions, which is the whole point of this podcast and kind of my own searching. I would love to dig into the athlete piece just for mm. selfish reasons, because that's what I'm trying yeah. to do. And I think there's been a big shift where individual athletes on teams often have a larger platform than the team themselves or even the league, yeah. you know? People are following LeBron more than they're following the Lakers or yeah. choose your sport and athlete. Our mutual friend, Matty Orr, recently did some uh, research and came up with four roadblocks or obstacles that kept coming up for athletes. And I've definitely experienced these myself. And they are, I don't know enough about this, so not enough education, confidence, and speaking on climate. What if I come off as a hypocrite, which we touched on, worrying about their own the carbon footprints? Where would I even start? feeling overwhelmed by the scope of the problem, not knowing where to begin. And sometimes I don't think my team sponsors, agents, et cetera, will support this. You have probably one of the best understandings of everything that's going on in every different country, every different league, <laughs> every different athlete, which is amazing. Do you have any ideas about ways that leagues, teams, sponsors, and athletes can try and I guess, break down some of these barriers. And it seems like you did a really good job with your work with the football or soccer teams. And where would I even start providing that kind of blueprint? Here are the most impactful areas. Here are the actions you can take from there. Yeah. So I'd love just to kind of hear your perspective and hear you riff on that a little bit. Yeah. So first of all, shout out Maddie, legend yeah. of this space. And I'm wonderful that she's getting um, legends in. And that work's really important. And I think the athlete advocacy piece is, as you so rightly said, it's, it's massive. And even coming off the back of COP26 there in Glasgow, the number of athletes that were there and the way their messaging resonated more possibly than some world leaders <laughs> is, is very telling in terms of 
how it lands. So, you know, listening to Elliot Kachogi talk about issues in Kenya and sort of comparing that to his his training and, and now how data and innovation is helping the crisis and how it, the impact it had on his training and things like that, it really resonates with people. So I think the, the power of athletes is obviously unquestioned. And to your point about, you know, your travel footprint and wanting, I think, again, it always comes back to this credibility and authentic, authentic authenticity perspective because mm-hmm. um, we do live in this culture where you have to be whiter than white or, you know, you have to be the, the yeah. purest of all to be able to say anything, which is, is clearly incorrect. And um, I think the way we talk through the likes of eco-athletes and there's obviously other great organisations like Champions for Earth and Front Runners and Players for Planet, etc. now, which is brilliant to see all of these organisations supporting athletes. So there's a few ways I think we can support athletes as, a, as an industry, but also a few things I think that we can learn from athletes as well. So... When you were talking, I was thinking of Hannah Mills, who is the GB yes. sailor, who's absolutely incredible. And I've spent a lot of time within Glasgow and, and talking about different things. And to that credibility and authenticity point, I don't think we necessarily need every athlete to be talking out about climate change all the time. What we need is athletes to find something that really resonates with them and that they feel really passionate about and talk about that. So with Hannah as an example... It's the plastic that she saw when she was competing in Rio in 2016 and the unbelievable amounts of plastic there in the oceans when she was competing, which made her massively concerned and then went on to launch the big plastic pledge around dealing with that issue. So I think there's merit as well to athletes feeling as though it's not their job (laughs) to do everything. You know, it's actually easier to tackle challenges if we break them down a little bit. And also it's easier, I think, for athletes to find something you know, whether it's someone like Katie Rood, who's who's plant-based, or yourself, who's spoken so articulately about working with sponsors and how, you know, the, the way that works and the way you want to take personal responsibility, et cetera. You're not necessarily just going on about climate change all the time. What you talk about is personal accountability and, and the way that's manifesting through the way you're using your voice and your platform to provide leadership inside your sport as well as more broadly. So I think there's great lessons there from you and, the likes of Hannah or Katie Rood or Alexandra Rickham, who kind of thought, well, this is, you know, Katie Rood is an example of footballer. She's, she's vegan. So she's like, yes, I know I have an impact in other areas, but actually if, if this is my job, and unfortunately I have to travel for my job, if I wasn't in this position, someone else would be, and they might not be using this platform in the way that I am. And actually I am vegan and that's just who I am. So I can talk about that. Is that what it yes. So that's what I'm going to talk about. So, you know, it's only really simple. I'm giving an oversimplified No, I think that's spot on, though. I think that's spot on is speak, like you said at the top of the conversation, is you want to, one, be knowledgeable about what you're talking about and show that you've done the work. And two, speak from personal experience. Get your own house in order. You don't have to know everything, but try and understand what you're most interested in, what you're most passionate about, and where you can have a positive impact. And it took me so long to figure that out is I could partner with, Parlay for the Oceans and Forest Stewardship Council and help them yeah. tell them stories to produce content and bring in athletes. And you can, being a professional athlete, part of your job is working with brands and sponsors, but you don't have to sell your soul to do that. You can find brands that have third-party certifications like B Corp, 1%, et cetera, yeah. and tell meaningful stories with them. So I think it just takes some time to figure yeah. out what levers you can pull as an individual and kind of where your interests lie. But like you said, and that's the thing I'm so excited about what you're doing in soccer and football is 
you're providing that roadmap to the teams and then empowering them to take action where it makes sense for them and aligns with their values, which I think is a really overlooked aspect. This episode is brought to you by Caldera Lab. Caldera Lab is a certified B Corp, makes high-performance skincare by combining pharmaceutical-grade science with nature's most potent ingredients. Finally, a skincare routine that uses non-toxic, sustainable ingredients and actually works. In high school, I got a nasty sunburn that literally burnt the pigment out of my skin and left me with a surprisingly symmetrical two-tone mustache that led to my nickname, the Lorax. I've been playing beach volleyball professionally for over a decade, using sunscreen every day, and have spent more time in the sun than I care to think about. I can't tell you how damn happy I am to have a simple and effective daily routine to leave my skin feeling healthy and help offset all the exposure and damage that can come with playing beach volleyball. I use their three-product regimen daily. The Clean Slate is a balancing cleanser I use in the shower. The base layer is a light moisturizer I use every morning. And the Good is an antioxidant-packed face serum I put on before bed every night. The regimen is backed by a clinical trial with real people and 100% participants reported healthier-looking skin. So I'm not alone when I say this stuff actually works. I love Caldera Lab's mission and products, so I want to share a special discount of 20% off for our impact listeners. Go to calderalab.com slash casebeer or use the discount code casebeer at checkout. That's C-A-L-D-E-R-A-L-A-B.com slash casebeer. I, I think more broadly as well with athletes, we, we do a lot of work and um, are very fortunate to collaborate with the Albert Sports Consortium, which is a, run by BAFTA, the British Association of Film and Television here in the UK. A lot of that is around you know, sports broadcast as well. So how can we bring some of this into sports commentary and how can we support athletes to talk about what they're passionate about in post-match interviews, et cetera. And whilst it's brilliant and we're seeing more of it, we're seeing a lot more packages here in Europe of, you know, if it, the Tour de France is happening, well, you know, what's happening around sustainability and the, and the tour or, you know, we're seeing these different packages as part of the output in sport, but how can we bring it into commentary in a way that doesn't feel forced, in a way that feels natural? And also through that, whether, you know, obviously a lot of athletes yeah. become pundits or commentators when they retire they've got they've still got massive reach just because they're not they're not a current professional athlete how can we help support them as commentators to just be aware of this whether it's carbon literacy training or making them feel comfortable about the big issues that maybe athletes do want to talk about commentators are comfortable so yes. we have to and um, to this collaboration point again in sdg 17 we really have to support athletes but also the people who are interviewing athletes to get this comfort level to talk about some of this in a natural way. Yeah. And that seems like a small little detail, but that's huge is how yeah. do you help fans and how do you help the sports community more broadly become aware of it and become aware of what the athletes league or sponsors are doing. Yeah. And we had just to finish up on that. No, point, keep going. I love it. And um, we had uh, this summit this year, we had a brilliant panel on sports media and one of, you know, BBC and Sky and ESPN and others spoke about that. But again, part of what we need to do through athletes, but also as, as an industry as well is make sure that sports media know what's happening not in there not in there here's our press release we've just got a new solar provider <laughs> that's no that's no good we need we need athletes and we need you know industry professionals to be able to collaborate with journalists in sports to make sure that they broadly know how things are progressing what's happening what athletes are doing etc so again when the opportunity arises they are equipped to then talk about that and write pieces around that and that dan 
from ESPN spoke about that. I'm like, how can we, as an actionable point at the summit, how can we get together a little group of people who can keep us in the loop about how things are progressing so that if I'm covering a sport in the Midwest, that I kind of think, actually, is there a climate angle that I can put into that piece? You know, just connecting the dots all the time on that. So important. And I think there's a lot of room for improvement. I think there's been quite a bit of progress with leagues and teams, especially here in the U.S. with Green Sports Alliance and some of the work in NCAA. But it seems so simple, but training the broadcasters, training the people that speak the most about sports to understand the issues and speak out intelligently on them. Exactly. And get them comfortable with it. I think it's comfort, isn't it, Jeremy? You know, I mean, you've, you've said that yourself, the process you've gone through of like, none of us are climate scientists. There's loads of climate scientists and they're incredible, but they don't have the platform that sport has. So we need to get ourselves comfortable with like, these are the experts and we can signpost you over there. We're not experts. We're not scientists. We're not very pointy headed legends <laughs> who are doing all the acad- academic side. Yeah. And that. But what we can do is hopefully helpfully translate some of that you know, very complex stuff into everyday language that we can get out through our platforms and then hopefully drive behavior change off the back of that. Couldn't have said it better. So one idea I'm really focused on is strategy over tactics. So making sure you're focusing on the right thing first and then executing on it. In context for this conversation, where is the greatest impact and how Mm. do we take steps to achieve that? And then for 80-20 rule is where... Does 20% of the work produce 80% of the results? So could you talk a little bit about that, where you think there's high probability for an outsized impact? Yeah, definitely. So I think actually it all kind of comes together under one answer, really, which is the strategy side, whether it's an individual, as you've experienced for an organizational level, you can't manage what you don't measure. So we have to do the measurement first. So in terms of the strategy, before we can put a strategy in place, we need to know what our impact actually is. Because yes. I, I see even similar sized clubs in the same league have got vastly different overheads. They've got vastly different impacts in different ways. One might be a public transport venue. One might, you know, have a subway station right underneath it. The other one's a little bit further away. So most people drive. So when we see impacts, depending on geography, et cetera, they can change so dramatically. So whether it's at an individual level or an organization level, measurement has to be the first step always to start off and then from that you've got the data and the information to be able to put a strategy together that strategy probably includes ticking off a lot of it low hanging fruit first in terms of you know minimal input maximum output what are the things that we can change quickly and often that might come from changing providers it might be moving on to a renewable energy tariff or incorporating more plant-based options in terms of concessions and stuff that actually you can probably do fairly easily then the wider strategy piece, I think it's crucial, as you said, in terms of long-term holistic and systems change with inside an organization. You have to have that strategy there. So it is absolutely crucial. And obviously in terms of that, the buy-in at the very top level is absolutely necessary for it to filter down to every different function of the sports organization and to be genuine change. So I think, I think that strategy is absolutely key. But the one thing I would say in terms of the strategy versus tactics is that we don't want organizations to get so bogged down in strategy that they forget about the action bit or the tactics bit. (laughs) And that I feel like maybe, you know, sports progressing massively. And we've seen in the last two or three years, we've seen such a huge uptick in terms of efforts and progress and commitments and coverage, et cetera. But also, whilst we love the shiny press releases and the commitments and what we can say, we have to dig into the action sooner rather than later, even where it's difficult. So whilst the Jatton strategy is lovely, 
it's only useful if it's put into practice and quite quickly as well. So I think that the idea of getting the strategy in place first is massive. But, you know, we work with a lot of people who and say, well, we haven't got the, re- you know, smaller organisations say, well, we haven't got the resources to bring an expert consultant to sit with us for five or six months and pull this together. But we do want to do something. So that, again, in terms of benchmarking or starting off, finding where your impact is to your 80-20 rule. All, you always want to know where you're starting off with because otherwise you can't see that you're making the right progress. But even if you can't wrap around a full service strategy immediately, still don't let that stop yourself from putting those tactics into yeah. place and driving that action, even if it's the low-hanging fruit, because we haven't got time to waste. So anything is better than nothing. And um, Usually those actions are very obvious ones. You don't want to go too far down investing in certain areas or making wide-scale change that you haven't proven out. So often those low-hanging fruits are moving to a renewable energy provider, adding more plant-based option, trying to make it easy for your fans to access public or active transport options, for example, or working with suppliers and sponsors to bring more sustainability activations in place, get rid of waste, et cetera. So most of that low-hanging fruit you're going to find isn't changing the DNA of your organization, but it is making change. But the strategy is where we see the big wins because, of course, then if you have a business-wise, a sports business-wide strategy, then you know it's filtering down to marketing and sales and performance and facilities and, and everyone is playing their part because you've got this strategy. So that's why, to your point, it's so crucial to have that strategy to make sure then that the tactics stack up. Absolutely. And with so many of these actions, there's a ton of co-benefits that come with it. Like if you take trying to source local produce and food, you reduce greenhouse gas emissions, reduce transportation costs. Fans are happier because it's healthier, better tasting food. With all of these, it may not be straightforward at the beginning, but there's so many co-benefits that come with it. And then there's a storytelling piece, like you were mentioning, that trickles down from kind of a strategic program down Mm -hmm. to marketing and storytelling and the bottom line. So. It definitely takes some time to measure and kind of understand what your impact is and what the different ways you can possibly act. But there's a lot of co-benefits that come with it once you take that first step. Yeah. And to your point, even to add on more benefits, often when you look at sustainably produced food, usually it's local and therefore you're supporting your local community and putting that money back into your local economy as opposed to pay something that's mass produced and then shipped to you. So, you know, we find that sports as well, the the hubs. I was actually on a panel with a guy from the EFL Trust recently, which is the English Football League Trust here in the UK. And he basically said, if you map the 96 football stadiums in the UK over the most deprived areas in the UK, they match up. So again, anything within sport where you can support local communities and keep that money in the community, support jobs, support local residents, et cetera, and local communities, then yeah, it's the full sustainability package of, you know, the economy, people, planet and profit, but keeping it in the right place. Absolutely. All right. The big final question before the quick hitters, how do we get to systemic change? It seems like there is an interesting relationship between individual actions, collective or community action, and then large scale change at the international or governmental level. What are some of the best practices you've seen and I guess encouraging signs and where where do we have opportunities to really change the system in terms yeah. of sport and I guess society more broadly? <laughs> I'm not the fact you're finishing with just something minor. Just, <laughs> just something, something light. Little bits and bobs <laughs> at the end. Um, it's massive, but I think Again, there's kind of two sides to this. I think inside sport, we need this change to come from a federation and a governing body level. Essentially, they are 
are governments of sport, aren't they? They're the ones that set the rules. They tell us what fair play is. They tell us how sports can operate, where they can operate, when, et cetera. So federations and the governing bodies have to take responsibility if we are going to see this mass top-down effort within sport. But also I think broadly national and state governments need to incorporate this into their efforts as well. I think a good best practice of that is the French government where they have launched, they launched, I think it was 2017 or 2018, a 15-point plan, which basically said, if you want to host a mega sports event in our country, these are the 15-point plans that you have to include. Wow. So it was environmental elements, it was gender balance, it was accessibility, etc. So it wasn't just climate change and environment, it was sustainability more broadly in terms of diversity, inclusion, equity, etc. But basically, if you want to host, if you want to host a World Cup or a Rugby World Cup or a Women's World Cup or an Olympic Games in our country, these are the things you have to do. In terms of the impact of mega sports events, what a leadership position to say, you know, like that's, yeah. and to my mind, a standard that in the four or five years that have passed that other governments haven't done that. I mean, in terms of mega sports events and the impact of them, there's no negatives there because often, for example, at a country level, they're saying, you know, you have to provide locally sourced food. Well, that means that when mega sports events take place, a lot of the supplies are coming from inside their country, which is helping yeah. their local economy, etc. Exactly. So to your point, in terms of co-benefits, there's loads. And um, yeah. I think... We can all, the same as everything, we can all play our part, but in terms of systemic change, if the federations and the governing bodies and government don't make that change, it's never going to happen as quickly. Individual organisations can only go so far, they can only manage their own remit, whereas federations can help that more broadly. All right. Are you ready for the quick hitters? Hit me. Let's go. I feel like these change every episode. I'm still working on them. If any of them don't land or if any of them are not short, feel free to go long or skip, whatever. Um, I'll just do quick as a flash. Let's go. All right. Ted Lasso, best show ever made. Yes. I love it. I cannot say enough about it. I've finished the first two seasons. I'm ready to rewatch them again, which I never do. Um, Just pitch perfect on everything. It's amazing. The characters, they touch on like every relevant social, environmental, and cultural issue. It's it's fantastic. Yes. Um, Agree. Agree. Strong agree. (laughs) What is your go-to spot to get into nature? Because I'm in South London, my go-to spot is my local park, which is huge. It has um, woods, it has open green space, it has a lake. So whilst my go-to spot is usually the beach where I grew up in the Isle of Man, because I live now in South London, it's not it's not the biggest forest <laughs> in the world. I don't have I don't have a like Yosemite on the doorstep, but my local Beckenham Place Park is my local spot in nature. Nice. Where do you get your information? Are there any magazines, websites, or authors you read regularly, podcasts, or newsletters you subscribe to? Yes, of yours, obviously. Up there, Thank podcast. You. Thank you. Yes. And um, also for us, the sustainability port, which report, which is Matt Campelli, and the Green Sports blog, which is Lou Blanksty. Yes. Obviously, for us at an industry level, and um, it's brilliant. And then more broadly, I try and because I'm not just focused on sport, I try and keep across climate and environment more broadly. For us in the UK, you know, BBC, CNN kind of the bigger the bigger mainstream medium just to keep across everything what are you most curious about right now are there any questions you keep coming back to my big question that i keep coming back to is how this is a big one how can sport continue to be credible in environmental sustainability if it is funded 
or has sponsors from fossil fuel aviation, car manufacturers, etc. I, I think there's a lot of work to be done in that space, and I think it's not an easy answer, but it's something I keep coming back to about how are we going to tackle this as it becomes a bigger issue. That is a big one. Is there a book you'd recommend to someone just starting to get curious about impact? A book I would recommend to anyone who's just curious about the world is All We Can Save, which was a collection of essays that was launched Great last choice. year, predominantly by female essayists. Um, I think it was Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson who led it, um, and maybe Catherine Wilkinson, I think, Wilkinson, as well. Yeah, yeah unbelievable. I just yeah. think, I mean, we're super, it's not sport related, it's, it's climate and impact, but I think just even if this isn't your space, it's just incredibly well written and evocative and just an incredibly good read. So, that's one. And then also coming up, I have to do a shout out for our friends, Brian McCullough and Timothy Kellison have got the Routledge Handbook of Sport and Sustainable Development that's coming out in early 2022, which I was yes. fortunate to do a guest chapter in. So that for oh. us in our sport and SDG space is going to be a, a brilliant handbook for us going forward. Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to check that out. I've learned yes. a lot from Brian and Maddie and the Sport Ecology Group. Yeah. So the best athletes can repeat basic skills over and over consistently, and true experts can explain complex ideas without jargon to kids. Mm -hmm. What skills or fundamentals have you found most important to really understand and be effective in your work around climate change and sport? I would say the power of the, the network, basically the power of people. And I think as much as you read, as much as you understand as well, like I've learned chatting with you, you know, you learn so much from chatting to people and connecting with people and hearing their perspectives and their insights. So for me, I think I wouldn't have been able to achieve what we have so far without the network that I've amassed globally and, uh, you know, so many credible people who are doing amazing work that we can collaborate with and connect with. So for me, but I think the big skill to, to the progress here is, is the power of the network. Is there something you wish you knew sooner in your career? Or if you had to start over in your career, is there something you would do differently? I have a bit of a faithless, so I would say everything yes. I've done has led me here. So, sure, sure. I'm no, the same way. There's no shortcuts. The, the only thing I would say, well, who knows what it could have changed is that I would have studied environmental management instead of law. <laughs> but in, 2000, in the year 1999 or whatever, that wasn't on my radar and if no. that was an option. And so, um, yeah, I'd probably change that if I, if I had the chance. But actually, I think our path is our path, isn't it? So everything yeah. led us here. Cool. What is a strong first step or action someone can take to have a positive social or environmental impact in their life or community? I think the biggest thing is using our voice. So having conversations and connecting with people to, again, to understand what they're doing, what they're interested in, how we might be able to change. Kind of use your voice, yes, to maybe lobby and drive change, but also to have conversations, I think, broadly understanding other people's perspectives and tolerance and, and understanding is a massively underrated yes. um, skill in our society at large generally. So I think in terms of trying to do something positive socially or environmentally, having conversations with others and maybe learning and, and being able to put that into action is, I think, a strong first step for people to take. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Claire. I really appreciate it. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed being part of Sport Positive Summit this past year and I've learned so much from you and the community that you're building. So thank you for all that so, you're doing. And Vice Versa, Jeremy, are doing an amazing job in terms of the work that you're doing. And it's a pleasure to be with you on the podcast and I hope we'll be doing more things together. Hey, this is Jeremy again. Thanks for listening to another episode of Our Impact. I hope you found this conversation useful and interesting. If you have any feedback about this episode, suggestions for future guests or topics, 
please leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.